Hi, Gary Zacharias again with The Apologist Bookshelf. I've spent 100 podcasts going through some of my favorite books, and now I'm going back and doing a little bit more with these uh, individual books, giving you another chapter, a little bit more information from the authors. This time I wanted to do a, a second chapter from a book called Why Social Justice is Not Biblical Justice. And so we've got a problem out there. We've got the ideological social justice part of critical race. We're hearing a lot about that and now being uh, taught in schools and things like that. And uh, so we talked about one chapter before in this book. It's by uh, Scott David Allen. And um, I like the subtitle, An Urgent Appeal to Fellow Christians in a Time of Social Crisis. So let's take a look at chapter 8 this time. It's called Driving Out a Bad Worldview by Offering a Better One. I think that's so powerful. I think we as Christians find ourselves complaining and defending and criticizing and um, looking at the negatives that we see around us when we have the best worldview possible. So let's start with this chapter and just take a look. It's kind of a long chapter and it's going to kind of hustle through it. Uh, somebody was saying uh, the quote from the beginning of the chapter, Nathaniel Blake said, The dogmas of intersectionality, socialism, gender theory, and other leftist notions of social justice are efforts to fill the void left by the decline of churches, communities, and families. But these secular doctrines are poor substitutes. They bring rage and misery, not peace. And I'll tell you, that just about sums it all up, doesn't it? There's a lot of rage and there's a lot of misery out there that are being generated, but we're not offering people peace. And it's a false religion, basically, this ideological social justice. It, it's it got quite a lure to it. It says you can have a source of identity, you, you can have community, you can have purpose. So I get it. I see why these uh, people out there are really pushing that. But what uh, the author, Alan, is suggesting is that the church has to offer a better story that says that our true identity, that's not found in our skin color or whatever ethnic background we have, our sex or social orientation. Sure, we're influenced by our groups, but our groups don't define us. What defines us? Well, our true identity is found in the fact that we're unique. We're priceless humans made in God's image, and we're loved by him. So Alan is saying we need to hear a story in which everyone bears God's image. And he says, you know, if you end up with your primary identity as victim, that's it, then what are you going to have for your life? Bitterness, resentment, grievance, entitlement. But what if your story says that your identity is sinner, true, but you're loved by God and you're saved by grace? What's that going to do to you? You're going to be marked by gratitude and humility throughout your life. Uh, he says we need to hear a story in which the power, power is not ultimate, love is ultimate. And that's what we get from God. He says we need to hear a story in which the line between good and evil doesn't run between racial groups. So that's the way it is right now. Whatever color you are, then you're either oppressor or oppressed. That's the way the uh, critical theory goes. But he said good and evil doesn't run between racial groups or males and females or any other group or class or party. And then he echoes Solzhenitsyn by saying it runs right through every human heart. And I wanted to take just a second and add the quote that he's using that came from Solzhenitsyn. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the Russian dissident, he said, If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But here he offers up what Scott Allen was talking about. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. So when we 
point to somebody and say, oh, that, that group or that person is evil. We, we've got it wrong. Every one of us has a heart of evil that needs help, and it's not a group somewhere out there. So I, I think he makes a good point there. Alan goes on to say that uh, people need to hear a story that defines what justice really is. And in their counterfeit story, what are, what are they hearing? Justice is uprooting traditional structures and systems. Why? Well, you redistribute power and money from these oppressors out there to the victims. But the Christian story, the Judeo-Christian story, is justice is conformity to God's perfect moral law, as found in the Ten Commandments and what James 2.8 says, love your neighbor as yourself. So we should not just oppose a particular destructive worldview, but we've got to uphold and defend and proclaim the Christian, the biblical worldview. So he says, let's not be anti-ideological social justice. Let's be pro-biblical worldview. And he gives you some ideas here, how that, what that would look like. He said, when you get this ideological social justice, that says human beings are socially determined, period. They're just a product of identity groups. That's their gender or their race or whatever. But the biblical worldview says humans are unique. They have responsibility. They have accountability. And sure, we're members of communities as well that shape our identity. Well, what about cultural transformation? Again, look at the contrast that Alan is pointing out. Ideological social justice is revolutionary. It calls the oppressed to rise up, overthrow the oppressors. There's no heaven. There's no afterlife. That's not, you don't look to that to put all wrongs to right. You got to take care of it right now. But the biblical worldview says this world is God's handiwork and he loves his creation. And he's going to redeem all things that are broken because of the fall. And God says we're supposed to participate with him to reconcile all things. So we work in the power of God's spirit to bring truth and goodness and beauty everywhere. Into the arts, into law, into education, business, government. And he says, of course, we look around, we see the world is corrupt and it's falling apart, but we're supposed to serve it and love it nevertheless. So we're supposed to be passionate about transforming this world. Now, for the social justice revolutionary, the change is external to the person. You change outside of him, but Christianity says the change has to come inward, inside, and spiritual, and then it transforms the society around it. He says the problems of the world are not out there in society. They're in here in our fallen hearts and minds. I think that's just crucial to this whole thing. Where is the problem? The problem is in us. It's not a person, a group, a social uh, standing or whatever. It's our fallen hearts and minds. I'm reminded of, uh, I don't know if it's an apocryphal story or true, but that uh, back about 1900, there was a Christian author who was asked, what's wrong with the world? And he said, and they were expecting him to say, oh, it's education or it's money or whatever. And he said, I am. I'm the problem with the world. We, we need to express that to others. What about racism? Well, ideological social justice says racism as well as sexism and homophobia and all that stuff, that's widespread. It's systemic. It's pervasive. And uh, it's true. It's out there. But we as Christians are supposed to be committed to a biblical worldview would reject that definition of racism, that it's prejudice and power. Uh, racism is only uh, applying to white people. We have to define and defend the true definition of racism, the idea that race is the primary determination of all of our traits and capacities. 
and racial differences produce an inherent superiority of a particular race. We don't believe that. We need to work hard for true racial reconciliation. What about this idea of structural systemic injustice? He says that, you know, the biblical worldview provides a comprehensive view of the fall. The fall affected individuals, that's true, but it disordered all of creation, and God wants to redeem it all. And and, uh, so we can agree with these uh, social justice people that there is structural or systemic evil, but it's not a distraction. It should not be a distraction, really, that brings the church away from the central mission. If you want to reform the evil that's outside there, what do you have to do? You have to transform fallen human hearts. So we're back again to the idea that good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. He also goes on to talk about the advocates of ideological social justice see the Western civilization and the U.S. as irredeemably corrupted. That's it. It's it's gone. And uh, he says, you know, the temptation is for us to paint the other side, say, oh, no, no, it's okay. Well, there are no perfect or near-perfect civilizations. That includes us. So we have to uphold the truth. That's a key thing about our nation's history, both the good and the bad. So we shouldn't be marked by a, a real negative spirit toward America or Western civilization, but not superiority either. So what are some of the tactics? What, what are some things that we should use as we're talking to people that differ with us? Well, he says, you know, on the other side, the ideological social justice people are going to use power tactics. They It's called cancel culture. They'll talk political correctness or they'll bully or they'll shame or they'll threaten or they'll silence whatever they can make people lose jobs cancel culture doesn't believe in free speech or dialogue there's no forgiveness there's no reconciliation this in fact he says sounds a lot like what happened in the french revolution and the communist revolutions in russia and china and cambodia and cuba this sounds pretty marxist when you look at it so how should christian opponents respond well he says, here's some thoughts. So he's got a section here. How should we respond to these people who are our, our opponents? Well, we need to be gracious. We need to be civil. We should give others the benefit of the doubt. We assume, or we should assume, that they really do want to pursue justice and fight for the oppressed. We should be quick to listen, slow to speak. We should pray. Oh, amen to that. We shouldn't give up on discussion and dialogue. We shouldn't cow to pressure. And we should sacrificially work for our neighbor's good. We should not fear. That's easy to do that these days. Then fear of losing a job or fear of being called names. He says, don't fear, but trust in God's sovereignty and power. Love those who oppose you and pray for them. That comes from Matthew 5. And then he says something I think is so valuable. He said, you know, the things that shape our culture, look around. It's education. It's the arts. It's film. It's literature. It's entertainment, it's law, business. He said it's really sad. Almost all of them are controlled by the people that are on the other side, the ideological social justice uh, practitioners. And he says, you know, somebody's always impacting culture. If it's not the followers of Jesus, it's going to be those that adhere to other worldviews. We need to get back in the business of actually forming and creating culture, especially, he says, in education, the arts, media, law and business. We've walked away from these things and let the world have them. He says, you know, this ideological social justice is dangerous. It's false. It builds up hatred, division, a false sense of moral superiority. Truth gets replaced by power. Gratitude gets replaced by ingratitude. 
It's a culture where everybody is looking to be aggrieved all the time, and people don't take responsibility for their lives. We get sexual libertinism, personal autonomy. There's no love your neighbor. There's no grace. There's no forgiveness, no humility, no introspection at all. So what do we want to do? He said, you know, I would like to live in a culture where truth and justice and love are the highest goods, where God is honored and all people are loved as his beloved children, where he quotes Martin Luther King Jr., where people are judged by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. So here's what he's holding out as a, a, an image of what we could be, justice being based on God's unchanging moral law, a culture that upholds due process and the rule of law that sees all people as fallen sinners but objects of God's love and his mercy, a culture that's marked by grace and mercy and tolerance and forgiveness, where reconciliation and redemption really are possible, where there's humble gratitude. I mean, this is what we want, don't we? He says, so so what do we do about this? Well, he said the best way to drive out a bad worldview is to offer a good one. We need to move beyond criticizing culture. We should be creating culture. I think that's so good. Create culture. And he says, don't get discouraged. He said, this is a, a hard task, but we're not alone. And he quotes Greg Kokel. I like a lot of the material Kokel puts out. Here's what Kokel had to say. Those of us who trust him are not alone in the struggles against evil and injustice. Even though we take casualties, he is with us always in everything. That's his promise. And then he quotes from Jesus. In this world, you will have tribulations, but take courage. I have overcome the world. So I think that's the, the last chapter of the book. It's, again, a very powerful book, Why Social Justice is Not Biblical Justice. As we take a look around and we see the rise of critical theory and critical race theory, we have to consider this and we have to make this part of our lives and confront it when we can, but obviously with a, a spirit of grace and, and mercy and compassion. Well, thanks, and we'll do another podcast soon.